Welcome to the next episode of American Filmmaker. On this episode, we are going to talk to Travis Irvine, a comedian, a politician, a journalist, a filmmaker, and most importantly, my friend. Welcome, Travis Irvine. Hello, Josh. It's good to see you. It's nice to see you as well. Uh, I guess, should I give everyone a little background that you were my film TA at Ohio University, one of the few supportive administrative level people who are supportive of my uh, my first feature-length film about killer raccoons called Coons, Night of the Bandits of the Night. And uh, yeah, you and a couple other professors at the video production school were very supportive and it all paid off because we were 21 years old and we gave the movie to Troma Entertainment, making it a cult movie. And this is how Travis and I met at Ohio University. Yes, you're a great film TA and also very supportive uh, film maker friend. And then it goes further. When I moved to New York, you were there, and you helped me get my first job at the New York Film Academy, which really was good. I mean, that kept me alive in New York. I mean, I moved there yeah, for a political too. job in 2008 that like vanished within like two or three weeks. Because I was like raising money on the street, and I was like, "Oh, this is not what I thought it was going to be." I thought I was like working for Obama, <laughs> and then um, <clears throat> yeah, you recommend the New York Film Academy because you had worked there off and on as a TA. And I remember I took the camera TA test and bombed it, but then the key move was asking if they had an edit lab and if I could go talk to them, and that's where I did well with the test and got hired. And I worked there for two years. Nice. Yeah, kept me alive in New York. And then you had one one more big uh, big role there in uh, 20, 2009, 2010, helping me scale down my 76-minute full-length feature documentary, American Mayor, about me running for mayor of my hometown in Ohio in 2007. It was just too long and too big, and you helped us cut it down to a short documentary, uh, 40 minutes. And after that, then we got into Cannes, we got into Atlanta, Palm Springs. So I pretty much owe you my career and my life. Oh, I'm sure it's not that that much, but I do appreciate it. I'm totally humbled by, um, you know, just being able to help. And then also just having friends that are creative. I think that's one of the most important things is to be supportive of the creative people around you. And I think that's unconditionally, whether or not you understand what's happening around you with the creativity or if you really, really like it, you know, because I think sometimes it's good to stay subjective too. Let's go back to the beginning. Tell me about growing up and when you noticed or thought you might be creative and then when you thought you might want to become a filmmaker or comedian and journalist, political commentator. Oh, sure. I mean, <clears throat> creative was easy because my mom was a calligrapher and my dad was a singer-songwriter who uh, brought home the bacon with a, an IT job that he had at AT&T for years and years. Um, but they were both very creative people. So at three, I was like drawing and making my own little picture books and things like that. So I knew creatively that that was, that was always going to happen. But the fun thing was discovering movies probably when <clears throat> my half-brother from my dad's first marriage, he would come stay the summers. I mean, this big VHS uh, camera. And that's kind of what started the home movies, right? Like my dad would use it, but then like my brother would use it to like actually shoot like little short films. And, you know, it was all in-camera editing. It was, you know, shoot this line, shoot this line. Very similar to how they shoot films in Nigeria, pretty much. You were so ahead of your time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were we were basically Nollywood before. Well, actually, I think Nollywood happened first. Nollywood took off in the 80s, and we, this was like the 90s for us. Nice. It was homage to Nollywood. I would say so, even though we didn't know what it was. But, uh, yeah, so then I started making, you know, short videos for English classes, creative projects, any excuse I could, starting, like, fourth grade um you know everything else was like home movies before that just like fun little lego movies and things with my sister and then we got into creative projects and then like full-on like a james bond parody that me and my friends made um with credits and music and everything and you know as i just kind of kept growing up in uh, this small town in ohio you know through high school we eventually <clears throat> i think i made a few more creative uh, projects with the big vhs camera but then finally it was time to learn big boy equipment. And so I remember senior year of high school, I interned with the production office of a hospital. And that's when we discovered, you know, Final Cut Pro and Avid and uh, different kinds of cameras and things like that. So 
That was a uh, VHS one parody of uh, like making the band or something like that. I forget what that old show is called, but um, we made a whole parody of that about a fictional band called the Overbites, which has now led to the production company that I run with my friend from high school and a couple other friends from from college. Overbites Pictures. That's amazing. I mean, that all thank led, you VHS. Yeah, that all led to college. You know, I mean, and then college, of course, was Ohio University thinking I want to be a weatherman, then realizing weather was hard. And um, even though I like news, I like more like political news, right? And I joined the comedy sketch group. And then it was because of the comedy sketch group that I was camping down in Florida with them and the uh, o- OU Surf Club. And we went and saw the new Dawn of the Dead remake. And that inspired me. Uh, you know, I had never seen a zombie movie until college, until that day. And I was like, whoa, man, horror comedies are cool. And then literally that night, raccoons were, like, attacking our camp in Florida and, like, getting into the different, you know, they were, like, talking to each other across the camp and, like, making noises. And it was just surreal. And I looked at my buddy. I was like, has anyone ever made, like, a killer raccoon movie? And this was 2004, so we couldn't get on our phones and look at it. But when I got back to OU, I Googled it right away, realized no one had done it. And then I just started putting the plan together to pretty much shoot it with my comedy troupe friends and my filmmaker friends at OU. And um, I started researching all the, like, the terrible man versus horror movies, right? And try to do, like, as many homages as we could to those, you know, like Grizzly and Frogs and uh, uh, just some real weird ones. You know, and then that's what we ended up making. That was my first feature, made it at OU. Coons, Night of the Bands of the Night, about killer raccoons. And then, yeah, it became a, a trauma movie out of nowhere, you know. And the thing with trauma movies is you don't get any money for them, but, like, they have an audience, and they get them out to that audience. And I think that's been kind of nice, especially since then, like, raccoons have gotten even more popular. So I think trauma must be pulling in something from our movie, but we see zero dollars of that. But that's okay. We were 21. We were just happy to have a movie all done. Yeah, and I think it's important to participate in things like trauma because – Troma distributed the South Park creator's first movie. Yeah. Yeah, and so it's part of this legacy of, you know, everybody who came before you and 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 kind of set up this genre or this type of movie and like an audience for that type of movie. So yeah. I I think that's cool cuz in a way it puts you in that same mythical creation myth story legend and you know you also have to be realistic about it too it's like yeah trey parker matt stone's first college movie got distributed by trauma james gunn a lot of his early work he wrote for them and worked for them um and eli roth is another one and there's some other ones but you know they also have like 800 movies in their catalog and most of those folks are just like yeah make your own movie and then who knows if they make anything else i think yeah you're the one who we used to talk about was like for all the filmmakers to make their first feature, only 25% of those go on to make their second. And then of those, only 25% to go on and make their third. And it's just like, you know, the statistics are kind of depressing. And that's why, you know, I'm so interested to hear kind of your stories about your second feature. You were helping me gear up for my second feature. And, of course, my second feature is still getting finished. But, like, yeah, just going for that second feature is a, is a big, it's a big bulk of work. Yeah, yeah. I think you want to be better. <laughs> if nothing else, you want to be better than your first one. Yeah, and I think better is also subjective. Better is it a bigger budget? Better because the story's better. Better because you have a better crew. Better because the whole crew likes each other, and the process was smooth because everybody is used to working with each other. Um, better because the cops didn't come. Better mm-hmm. because you had insurance on everything. You know, I think it's interesting because the first feature is hard. And with the success of that, you kind of define whatever audience you might have or have access to. And then from there, you have to try to build the next effort. When our first feature was coming out, we didn't realize that there were a lot of people in the industry that were kind of the people who were carrying on kind of the abuse and the physical scandals that eventually the Me Too movement exposed. Mm -hmm. And so in many ways, I was like a babe in the woods. I I love storytelling. I love the process. I love being able to show things to audiences and then move them. And then going into a place where it was almost, I don't know if it was violent, but it was surreal because there were so many entertainment products that people could make the choice. And 
distribution was extremely hard in 2010 and like the coveted thing was like the digital distribution deal and then those deals from our festival really went to one film that basically kind of rigged the whole game because they were from a crime family in the city that our film had its world premiere in and the political kind of nature of the family you know allowed him to bring uh, prostitutes to the film festival closing party and so at the end of the day the american or the international distributors who chose one or two films from that year um chose one of his to give the coveted distribution deal and so at that moment i realized the belly of the beast was deeper and darker and that kind of the best thing that i had had done for myself was made a film that was a good story and had a good audience and had a great soundtrack because the Budos band and members of Charles Bradley and his extraordinaires were on it, which would create a culture around the film. And that long lasting culture would kind of stay around as I still owned the rights to the movie. And so the body of work, which I hadn't really created or even understood why people had a body of work, I realized the body of work was the answer. And so I tried to write my second feature film, and I wrote three or four screenplays of varying varying genres, uh, different casts, different budget lengths. But at the end of the day, the one that I could make most was the one that was had good characters and had a budget that was achievable mm-hmm. and a budget that you could put all of your resources towards so that all the creativity would come through. And I think nowadays, regardless of what people say, story matters. And if the creator intends to go on, because the other thing I realized on the film festival circuit is there's a lot of people who just want to make one movie and be a one hit wonder and go away. That sounds really nice now, frankly. (laughs) Yeah, it does. Right. I mean, but there are very few people who want to go on. And so if you're a creator kind of like Travis, you know, or just, you know, that you want to create for your life and this is what you're doing. It's a different type of creator. And I think the moment is now for filmmakers, writers, comedians, who are more versatile than this older version of the entertainment industry who wants to pigeonhole you into doing one thing, which I understand. We need TV programs for people. We need to keep the train on the tracks. I'm talking about the higher level of how new intellectual property gets created and then gets distributed. I'm not talking about you know, how the light gets set how the thing gets edited, even though me and Travis know about setting the light, know about editing the thing. We're really talking about the creation of something new that the world hasn't seen. And once that new story gets out into the world, it creates a culture and an audience and a fan base around it. And so I think really that's the marathon journey. So getting back to Travis on this marathon journey, how did it go making the second feature film? Um, How did you decide which script to pick and then once you picked it how did you go about assembling the team i guess yeah i mean the sequel came about honestly right after the first movie got done because um, you know it was 2006 when we shot everything in 2005 got it done by the end of 2005 tinkered with it a little bit in 2006 but i delivered it uh, by hand to Troma's offices in New York because I had an internship um, with the Today Show in 2006 as I was a senior at OU. And we heard back from them within two weeks that they wanted to distribute it. So I think the only other people we were really waiting to hear from was Asylum, which at at that time I think our movie may have been a little too cheap for them. Um, I forget. I think someone said we eventually heard back and they were interested. But Troma seemed like a good fit because they went for it right away. It seemed to fit their audience. And again, we were 21 years old. We weren't really looking to make... You know, the movie, the first movie cost $5,000, and we made about half of that back just on showing it in Columbus for four weekends at, a, at the Gateway, um, which is the theater in, in Columbus, you know. So we were very ecstatic that we could, you know, just get a distribution deal at 21 with our first movie. So, so um, you know, so we went for all that, and <clears throat> I think that summer, 2006, that's when you had snakes on a plane. And so I forget how it all came about, but we were hanging out, and Under Siege 2 was on the TV, and it kind of the idea came about about doing coons on a train, except it would be the plot of 
Under Siege 2, and we just bring back our characters from the first one, and, and the raccoons hijack the, the train instead of terrorists, and, you know, Steven Seagal is replaced by our, our main actor from the first movie. And it was just a fun idea in 2006, and, you know, I would say that I pursued a couple other films, right? I, I wanted to try to make a feature in the Bahamas. I pushed really hard for that fell through. That's what forced me to move back to Ohio and run for mayor of my hometown. We decided to make a documentary about that. It wasn't full-length documentary, but short documentary. We still got it done by 2010, thanks to uh, to Josh's help and many others. And um, and you know, so then that film got back out there, and then I went to Columbia Journalism School. Um, oh yeah, that's one thing I really wanted to talk about because I think it's important. You're very complex as a writer, as a comedian, and as a filmmaker. Um, you're almost a triple threat in a lot of ways, or quadruple or quintuply threat. Pursuing the political journalism, what was that like, making the films and then making the decision to go back to get a graduate degree that, in essence, really kind of helped you pursue all, all of your passions all at the same time? Yeah, it was nice because at Columbia I was able to make a documentary about, and not just weed in general, but like specifically like the the legalization, uh, the process of legalization of marijuana and how that's affected different states. Of course, what's so funny is that was 2012, and now here we are less than eight years later, and the the whole landscape's changed <laughs> so much even from that documentary. Like, I remember like things in that documentary are no longer relevant like even after a year. So, yeah, that allowed me to make my writing better. I also was able to make videos anyway since I already knew how to make them. And just, yeah, um, you know, I saw a journalism degree as a way to help the writing, but also the documentary stuff. It all kind of adds into each other. But, you know, it also derailed any hopes of me making any more, you know, longer movies, short documentaries, features especially. So I'd say 2013 then, after the 2012 election was all wrapped up, that was the first time that I found out from my friends who were in the first Raccoon movie that uh, they were still interested in Coons 2. And they were like, oh, yeah, what's what's happening with that? So we were in Chicago shooting a pilot for another friend for his MFA. Uh, he's actually the lead actor in the first movie. You know, one of the nights we just all hung out. We bought Under Siege 2 on uh, iTunes or something, watched it, cracked jokes the whole time. And that's when the seed was planted again for me. It was like, oh, my friends do still want this to happen. And so within two years, uh, by April 2015, I'd finished the script. I think, you know, 2013 and 14 were both kind of busy again just for journalism and, and political stuff. <clears throat> but I managed to get the first draft of the script done for Coons 2, Dark Territory in the Dark by 2015. Realizing 2015 was going to be a money-making year for my company because we were making content for The Guardian, I was like, okay, let's focus on that so we can have money to make this movie later. 2016 came around. I was like, okay, I'm back in with politics and journalism. I'm busy again. But then 2017 came around. I was like, okay, we have a window here where we could possibly shoot this movie. I knew I always wanted to use the trains in Nelsonville. Um, I had been in touch with a guy named Bill since 2015 about it. We actually went and rode on the train. And, you know, originally I was thinking Coons 2, Dark Territory in the Dark would be a summer movie. But in those early months of 2017, we readjusted it, made it Killer Raccoons 2. Um, so it's more, you know, friendly for the market and everything like that. Um, but then we also decided to incorporate Die Hard 2 into it to make it a Christmas movie instead of a summer movie. So that's when it became Killer Raccoons 2, Dark Christmas in the Dark. And I had that all rewritten by, you know, April 2017. I think I made a few more adjustments by June. And then by July, that's when I was really following up with the folks in Nelsonville. Be like, all right, how can we shoot this movie in, in winter on your trains? Is this even possible? And I knew I had a fourth of the funding that we wanted safe with my company. And we just needed three more, you know, miracle investors to come in. Um, with shares and so that's basically you know the summer 2017 we really started to push and then all the pieces come together you know how it goes it's like there's so many times when pieces fall apart and it does not come together and just slowly week by week bring in you know some core crew together some core people together and really once I had that train location knocked down in Nelsonville and you know the fact that they had a whole engine house it was pretty much like a film studio we just had to pull the train cars in there we could keep it warm, keep everyone warm, you know, do kind of like a green screen so you didn't have to move the trains for real, you know, outside the windows, things like that. It was just slowly and surely everything came together. We, we were set to start shooting in December 2017. 
And I remember even as, as late as October, I didn't have the second investment yet. But by the end of that month, I had that. Even then, I didn't have the check in the bank account until December, like a week before we started shooting. And in November, I didn't have the cast fully set. I was trying to get old cast members who now they were living in L.A. It would have cost too much to bring them in from L.A. And also, they didn't have time to do it. Like They were like, I can give you three days tops if you fly me in this day and fly me. And it's like, so we abandoned all that. You know, it's kind of like that the thing with filmmaking right is just you gotta pick and choose your battles uh kiss your darlings goodbye you know things like that so at the end we went with a very ohio heavy cast but these guys were had experience in new york and la and some of them are new um and did great going in and then getting through those crazy two weeks there of production in december 2017 in nelsonville with you know basically a, a core crew of people you know, charging us much less than their day rate. It was pretty much people going for bulk rates. And then the real key was getting, like, 15 amazing OU interns to show up and, like, love working on the movie and everything. Um, and they really kept that set going. And big shout-out to my producers for organizing everything okay, our VFX and DIT crew for, you know, bringing in an RV that we basically had our parked outside of the of the engine house function is like, you know, a safe space for the computers and that kind of equipment, camera equipment, things like that. I mean, yeah, just everything came together. Um, and then, you know, what I found for after we wrapped the movie and post-production 2018, that's when things got harder. <laughs> it's like we were able to pull off two insane weeks on a moving train with dead frozen raccoons and with, you know, half a, a crew of interns. Um, but then post-production proved to be the, the, the real, the real tough part, at least, you know, even now we're still, we're still going through it as, a, as of this recording. Yeah. Thank you for showing me a uh, test cut version. You know, that's pre-release version. I, I appreciate it. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, I feel it. I think the journey will be good to finish VFX because what you got going in there right now is, is really nice. I mean, oftentimes I think the visual effects are are put in just to make make the world complete. But I think in this case, it's really playing up the absurdist comedy of these frozen raccoons taking over a train. Yeah. In the um, homage of Under Siege 2. Yeah, right, yeah, which you is know? a terrible movie. Like yeah. every time I've watched Under Siege 2, probably more than people who worked on that movie. And it's just because I watched it while I was um, writing the script. Uh, I watched it before the production. I watched it before the editing so I could make sure I had my scenes all right. And then I watched it again when we were plugging in the music because I just want to know where they had music and where they didn't and why and what it sounded like. And um, that was the last one. That And I will say on that last viewing of Under Siege 2, I noticed like little green screen errors. You know, it's like a multi-million dollar 90s movie, but even then like their green screen was pretty, pretty questionable. So, <laughs> you know, that's why I'm just like, that's what, you know, we had a, a funny thing we'd say on set where we'd just be like, you know, my only complaint is that it looks better than Under Siege 2. And I do think we've made a funnier, better Under Siege 2 that moves even faster. We chopped out, you know, again, I when I was writing the script, I pretty much would watch a scene Under Siege 2, pause it and rewrite it with our characters and raccoons and then hit play again. And that was the model. And by editing, even though we had shot the stuff that we needed to replicate, almost like a scene by scene shot for shot of under siege Two. like it was just like this is stupid why is this so we you know i was happy with a lot of cuts we made in editing that actually just kind of kept it moving even faster than than under siege Two. so and then the goal of um this which is nice because you've got a good lead time on when you hope to distribute the movie which is christmas 2019 mm -hmm. and so we're probably about a year away from that a little less than a year maybe nine months yeah yeah and so ideally you have the advertising campaign rolling by october i would imagine i yeah. mean it's you know i don't know much about distribution this is <laughs> the area where i'm just like where's the person who will give me no money to do this you know we are in an age where even the studio doesn't know how to distribute a movie so going back to the second feature film my friend's rubber ducky when it was on its film festival circuit tour mm. i got to meet with someone who was on the film festival for I forget which studio, but they were distributing the Dev Patel film, uh, The Man Who Knew Infinity, or A Man Who Knew Infinity about the mathematician. And 
when we were at that festival, I was the only one running trailers on Facebook. Mm. So then I basically told the guy who was, you know, doing the thing, and then he would b- probably go on to help with the rest of it for the theatrical. And then, of course, I saw his trailers on Facebook. So I think we're in a stage where they don't even know. I mean, theatrical attendance is low. And I think what's more important is having a movie that can polarize an audience to laugh or feel a certain way with its political commentary, its absurdist comedy, and raccoons that have tiny machine guns. (laughs) Yeah, they kill a lot of people. You know, so I don't think, you know, anybody should worry about that. I think, if anything, the major studios are just benefiting from their initial monopoly that was set up many lifetimes before us. You know, Netflix is now going at that. So I think, if anything, we're in a streaming reality, and it's Amazon Prime, it's Netflix, it's owning your rights, and it's getting as much as you can for whatever the term is. Yeah. You know? And that's been something that's kind of interesting is, like, some movies can be, like, streaming on Amazon and Hulu or Netflix, and then also be in independent theaters, which I like. It's like limited nationwide, even worldwide release. You know, if you have a limited scale of that, but then also it's available on streaming, it's kind of a doubly fun, you know, especially like a movie like ours, which I think is so much more fun seeing with other people. You know, we had 70-some people at our Athens screening, 50-some people at our Columbus screening, What's nice about that being a comedy is like, okay, that guy didn't laugh at that joke, but those people did. And then here's a joke where everyone laughs together. You know, it's just little things like that. And then, you know, and then you have people who hate it and and they walk out and they want their money back too. You know, it's it's the full spectrum of comedy. We are still in that post-production process. I've learned a lot about visual effects. I know as a filmmaker, this was very ambitious. The satellite is amazing. Pen pen 15. I I literally told my family at breakfast about <laughs> just the comedy behind pen 15. And, and I think when you see the movie, you'll understand the joke, even it, even though there is a visceral thing to it, but I think it, it kind of establishes this kind of male patriarchy that gets defeated. And so like, yeah, yeah the VFX does bring it home. There's a lot of symbolism there. Yeah. And that's one of the other things is like, you know, I, with political, well, in social commentary, especially comedy, it's like, yeah, there's, there's going to be jokes that are not for everybody. But at the same time, we do are we're trying to make a statement about certain things in our in our world, and we're also trying to make statements about you know movies that we're making fun of, like these all these old bad action sequels from the '90s, from Under Siege Two, uh, Die Hard Two, Speed Two. I mean, all of them have a, a token African American guy helping the hero. I mean, it's just like it was just this weird formula that existed for specifically action sequels in the 90s and and all the big studios went with it so we're trying to make fun of it you know and i love it i loved it because of that because it was literally you know it was taking the culture of movie making and then extending it even more Mm -hmm. and being like because if you watch the movie over and over again the acting fits the genre of the absurdist political comedy and so i think once people tap into that and then the vfx sell the comedy beyond all of it and then i think hopefully Uh, we can try some interesting targeting with it too. Right. You know, or just trying to figure out ways to find the right audience for it. Because I believe there are some people uh, on both sides of the fence, red and blue, and some purple people Mm -hmm. across the political spectrum that will enjoy laughing. Yeah, I hope so. That's the idea. And that's, you know, I I watched a lot of Christmas comedies over the holidays too to just be like, you know, like uh, Muppet Christmas Carol is one we watch every year. It's like, yeah, I don't laugh at the same jokes every year. Uh, You watch Elf. You watch Christmas Vacation. I mean, all of these have things that you don't notice every year or you do notice and you don't care till the next year. And that's kind of how I feel about not just comedy, you know. I mean, here's a comedy that for all intents and purposes, you know, as we got into the post-production, the sound mixer, the colorist, these people are watching the movie. They weren't involved with the production at all, but they're like, this gets funnier every time I watch it which is exactly what you want from a good comedy. It's like, oh, I didn't notice that joke before. But then you add that extra element of Christmas comedy. It's like people are watching it every year, ideally, right, because they liked it enough the year previous that they watch it again. It's like, oh, wow, I didn't notice that joke last year. And Oh, wow, you know, you always find something new about it. So, yeah, that was a, a fun, you know, realizing we were going to make the switch to make it a Christmas movie was was an idea that I'm glad we went with. That was I just watched Die Hard 2 
like three or four times. We have some direct quotes from Die Hard 2 in, in Killer Raccoons 2. There's a scene where the character says, how could the same shit happen to the same guy twice? And it's like so cliche and stupid, but literally Bruce Willis says it in Die Hard 2 when he realizes the airport is under attack by terrorists. <laughs> I, that's kind of what I always put. Anything that sucks is an homage. That's kind of how I tell people. Yeah, well, and I think it's interesting, too, because the Christmas thing I think is going to help. It will it kind of contributes to Christmas spirit, and if you need something fun to do with your family, with your friends especially during the holidays, and then you just want to do something off-kilter, fun, and uh, political. I do want to ask you about Ohio University. I think film schools in the United States are a really helpful way to learn how to make films. And then after that, you kind of go on from there. And I think often there's an uncertainty when you're leaving film school, but now we're in the future of that. And knowing that we've had all these friends and other alumni at Ohio University and kind of there's a community out there, I guess. And then what does that Ohio University creative community represent, I think, within the film industry or even entertainment industry? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I remember the well. The film school at OU was it's a master's program only, and I remember, you know, except for your class, a lot of the classes I took would have like just very pretentious, nerdy, you know, the classic film school type people. Whereas opposed to you know, then there was you, and your your whole idea was like, yeah, go make stuff. Let's all make stuff, and that you know that was a departure from the you know the beginning film courses that you took, which was like, well, let's watch these twelve movies and write a paper and analyze what they were doing, and and you know it's like cool, you can talk about films, you can make films, and I think that's always the big discrepancy that I see within especially film schools, even at you know New York Film Academy. Working there, we had some film nerds who just want to talk about movies, and we had some people who are like, oh, cool, you get the you're learning and you get it, and you're getting behind the camera as much as you can. I remember at New York Film Academy, that was like one of the reasons I think we even worked as, a, as an educational institution. You know, we were actually forcing people to touch cameras on day one. So, yeah, I, I've always found that, you know, that was, I think that's what pushed me over the edge too is, you know, realizing it was kind of like the Stanley Kubrick model, filmmakers make films, right? And there was even a, something I read about um, Stanley Kubrick when I was, I was studying abroad in England working on the first Kuhn script. And, you know, he said that there's just, there's something inherently important about just being on a film set and knowing how that works. It's controlled chaos is, this, is essentially what he called it. And he's like, and there's no education that can really teach you that. It's just, you have to just go do it. Robert Rodriguez obviously had his book about doing that. You know, I, I definitely, I think 2004, that's when I started to, step into that realm of, all right, if I want to make this movie, you know, should I wait till I'm in, you know, uh, film school, like an actual film? You know, I was in video production school, but there was no class, you know, there was no credits I could sign up for. It said feature-length filmmaking, you know. There was nothing. Like, there was a short film class. I remember that professor tried to talk me out of doing a feature and making it a short in his class. Um, he even tried to talk us into making a trailer. And, you know, at the end of the day, he's a film professor who's only made one three-hour documentary that no one cares about. And he's, you know, he may not have the best advice, you know. So, yeah, I definitely just tried to pay attention to the people who told us we could do it. And, you know, as you know, I mean, filmmaking, it gets lonely sometimes, especially when you're a low-budget movie and it's your project. When everyone, when you look around and there's no one else there, you're the only one who needs to keep pushing it. And and if there's things you don't know how to do, you bring in the right people to keep on pushing it. And that's that's how I remember it going down with the first movie. You know, it was like me and my buddy editing it at my parents' place because I had moved back home to take a semester off from OU basically because I was ahead on credits. So I was just taking a couple part-time classes. And then I was like just editing this raccoon movie and then you know and then it came to the music and then and then the sound design and you know how are we going to record the raccoon noises and you know how are we going to get this i remember for visual effects for that movie we only had like three visual effects shots we did everything else practical but even then i had to hang out with this guy rohan who um i had to like buy him white castle and hang out with him because we didn't have enough money to really pay him for anything <laughs> So he was just like, yeah, I'll do it, but uh, I really want some White Castle right now. And I was like, okay, well, we can go to White Castle, and then we can keep talking. And, you know, he eventually got it all done. <laughs> I remember he actually walked out of the, the screening 
the first one. But it wasn't because he didn't like it. He called me later to say that his mom had called him and he had to leave. And then he really liked everything he saw. So, <laughs> um, But, yeah, it's just uh, everything's a process. What's fun about, I guess, the main thing is that, like, you and I have talked about, we learn how to become total filmmakers, you know. And, yeah. and it's more than any film school could have ever taught me. It's like, yeah, I did learn Final Cut Pro, Avid, camera techniques, green screen stuff. You know, video production school was good. I'm glad I did that. But at the end of the day, I know what kind of movies I want to make. I know how silly I want them to be. I want them to have a statement while being silly. You know, and you just kind of got to know your own art and what you want to make. And I think kind of what you were talking to, and I think a lot of people put a lot of different things in their way, but I call it getting getting the 10,000 hours. Whatever you're trying to do, get that 10,000 hours. And then after the first 10,000, it's about 20,000. And after 20,000, it's about 30,000. And I think things change. Once I got my first 10,000 hours, things shifted for me. And it got really weird because I started to see things differently and like patterns differently within the entertainment industry. And I started to study things like when my first feature film had its world premiere, the people that were in the Rosebud section were uh, Taiki Waititi's boy, uh, Gareth Edwards' monster. Gareth Edwards would go on to become the director of, I think, one of the new Star Wars prequels. And it was this lesson of like, okay, what's really happening here? When Star Wars was distributed and Gareth was the director, Monsters wasn't available anywhere to buy or watch. Mm -hmm. So what does that mean? Gareth had a revenue stream as a top premier director and no one was watching out for him. Hmm. And he had made other films. He had made an Attila BBC The Hun documentary you know, that because he was good at graphics. And so it was just the level of the creator's body of work was not being available, available for people to watch and available to monetize and have that level of monetization, which goes back to creating Gareth Edwards, this premier director that not only working people know in the industry, but audiences know. Because I think we're getting to this place where creators have to be known more now in order to kind of start this authentic relationship between the creator and the audience. And I think things like podcasts, things like the way distribution has changed, I think we are getting to a different point where this age of authenticity is bringing us to that level of uh, exposure. Well, and it taps into what you were saying earlier about having different, you know, because, like, yeah, I, I consider myself in all my bios and everything I put comedian, filmmaker, journalist, unsuccessful politician. And it's like I have those four realms that I like to play with. And it's like that's kept me, you know, not just occupied but also, you know, funded to the point that I can, you know, exist for another year or save up and exist for two years without really making any money. And, you know, I've been very lucky to do that. But, yeah, that's that's what I try to do, you know, is like graduate from journalism school, jumped in a political campaign in 2012, jumped back to kind of the journalism side of things 2013, more of the political side again in 2014, and then back to journalism side 2015, 2016. And then 2017 was... Yeah, a little bit of politics, um, a little bit of journalism, but prepping for another movie. And this was like the first time I was like jumping back into, you know, filmmaking. And, and a part of, <clears throat> part of that was getting the American Mayor documentary back on Amazon, like almost like a re-release, letting everyone know it was back. And, you know, instead of having it come from another distribution company that just kept all of our money, now it's on Amazon and all that money goes directly to us, which is like a nice platform. I know Amazon's kind of a devil right now, but... It is nice to have a platform and we get, you know, sometimes it's only a dollar a month, but it is coming to us for a movie we made. And that's always nice. So, you know, I try to like switch it around and I know like this movie has been really hard, but at the same time, like, like we were talking about going forward, you know, I got two documentaries I want to jump back into. I want to take a break from politics for 2019 for sure and kind of prep for a 2020 um, come back if I have to. I mean, I mean, it's going to be an important year. I think everybody knows that. But, you know, what's nice is that 2019, I really just want to wrap up this raccoon movie, get two more documentaries done, and then chill probably for 2020, but then have another thing kind of ready to go because that's it. You're only as good as your last movie, and you're only as good as your next movie. You know, we're, we're in this constant limbo. 
And I know in my case, like, and, and yeah, I think you were in a similar case in just that I made my first movie in 2005. It got released by Trauma in 2008. I made my second short documentary. Well, my first short documentary, but second movie. We shot in 2007, got it done in 2010. Um, some other company distributed it for four years, and then we got it re-released in 2017. So it's been like a 10-year gap bef- in between me making any movies, um, which is weird, but, you know. Oh, you needed that 10 years to to <laughs> rest up for this, you know. And I think you have a lot of other pokers in the fire, and I wanted to ask you about the comedy. Tell me about just doing the comedy in uh, New York and then kind of doing that on the side while being a working journalist. Because I think you have some interesting stories about being a working journalist at Vice, Viceland. Um, yeah, HuffPost, yeah. Guardian, Viceland. Yeah, mainly those. Um, those are the big ones I like to, to mention. But, yeah, you know, it's, it's another part of that. It's just I like to keep things kind of rotating. If there's a year where it's the film or the political stuff isn't paying the bills, the journalism stuff can, you know. And with comedy, comedy I don't, really hasn't paid many bills, although I did – find out some good news about my album being on Sirius Radio, that that is apparently going to bring in some income now. Um, so that's crazy to think about. It's nice to just kind of mix it up because it's like, yeah, let's say let's say the raccoon movie, no one likes it. We, nothing happens with it, but we get it on Amazon again. And it's out there by Christmas and people are watching it and then word of mouth happens. And then every year the audience grows a little bit. And it's like if it takes seven years for my investors to make their money back, they're all family and friends, so they're patient with it, which is nice. But, you know, at the same time, it's like, okay, that movie didn't work out. I guess I'll jump back into the comedy or 2020 is coming. I'll jump back into journalism and politics. So, And I think the comedy is interesting because you can do so much of it live and have an experience with so many different people as you travel across the country and, you know, even the world. And then that keeps your stock growing. Kind of, I don't like this word, but I will say it the uh, personal brand. Mm -hmm. And I think what that means is just the individual, the authentic individual who is trying to create has a name. And that name is, you know, in this case, Travis Irvine. And so it keeps people going, hey, what's Travis doing? Oh, there was that movie. Oh, he mentioned it within the the, uh, stand-up routine so that one day someone's going to want to do a a deep dive. Mm -hmm. And then when they do, all of it's right there. Right, right, yeah. I hope it all holds together. It, it is kind of funny. It's like my politics are kind of, you know, more third-party, independent, trying to build, like, this new political brand of the future where libertarians on the right and progressives on the left work together and all the things that they agree on, which I think is more It's more so than what we disagree on. So I'm always kind of pushing that angle on politics. Comedy, you're always pushing the envelope and whatever, you know. I usually talk about, like, my experiences running for office. You know, I have Trump jokes right now. Or not just Trump jokes. It's, it's more about Trump supporters. I talk about my real-life experiences interacting with Trump supporters while I was running for office. Sometimes that turns off an audience because they see it as, a well, I'm a Trump supporter. And, you know, and it's like, yeah, I'm going to make fun of you. And, and then journalism-wise, you know, I've always tried to focus on topics and, and things that um, – may not necessarily be talked about, you know, mainstream, you know, I'm not, my face is not going to be on MSNBC anytime soon. I don't think, you know, I don't think I fit their mold. So it's kind of, it's just a constant, you know, whether it's filmmaking, journalism, politics, or comedy, I'm, I, I don't quite fit in. And yet there is that group. It's like you said about finding your audience, that there is this, this group of people who they do, they, they're buying my album, you know, they're buying, they're watching my movies, they're reading my articles, they, they do exist out there. So it's, it really is just about finding that niche and embracing it. And, and frankly, let's be honest, not letting the haters get you down. Because that's, you know, that's a mentality comedians have all the time. It's like, I can be in front of a room of 80 people, everyone's having a great time. If there's three people sitting in the front row crossing their arms, not laughing, I'm gonna focus on them, you know? It's like, yeah, you have a screening. 50, 70 people having a great time. Four people walk out, want their money back. Ah, it's like, ah, well, what what didn't they? And sometimes it's out of your control. You know, sometimes you just got to embrace what what you're trying to do, embrace what your art is, what your message is. And, and, you know, and even if people don't get it, you know, realize that, you know, that your work is good. Your opinion is valid. You know, I, 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 I stand by all my jokes in this movie, even the ones that may make people feel uncomfortable and just like, yeah, you know what? That's how I want you to feel sometimes. I definitely had some uncomfortable moments. 
<laughs> and it was fun. Yeah. It was fun. I think it's fun to be uncomfortable, especially in a way where it can be non-threatening. You know, it's like different if you're like on the savanna and like an elephant tries to stomp you down. But with this, movies present these situations and these psychological plays that people can play with and and kind of experience how high their consciousness is and how funny their consciousness can be. And I think sometimes we do take ourselves a little bit too seriously. Oh, yeah. yeah. That, so I that's think, something, I mean, especially Under Siege 2 and Die yeah, Hard that was 2. Way serious. 2 I mean, yeah, they just really took themselves very seriously. It would have been so fun if just for a moment they, you know, just realized they weren't really on a moving train or something, you know? I mean, a lot of the jokes, again, are, you know, I, I, I make a disclaimer <laughs> announcement before all of our test screenings of, A, this is a sequel. If you haven't seen Coons Night of the Bandits of the Night, a lot of these characters won't make sense, things like that. But then I also have to point out, if you haven't seen Under Siege 2, uh, this won't make a lot of sense either. Which is fine, because even people didn't see either of those movies, they could still buy into it. Even moving on from, from that, because I know you're finishing that project, and then that project will be out by Christmas of 2019. And That's then, the goal, absolutely. Tell me about the documentaries that you're also working on. Yeah, I guess one of the exciting things for me is, you know, as I try to wrap up this project um is uh yeah i i was essentially working on in 2016 and 2017 we were shooting for a, a friend's documentary his name is ed larson he's a member of the round table of gentlemen on the last podcast network um he works for jeff ross he writes jokes for jeff ross jeff ross is his cousin jeff ross is in the documentary and eddie's just a great guy and i i see eddie certainly as um almost like our generation's Michael Moore, like a new Michael Moore almost. The documentary we're making is about his mother who passed away um, under what I would say are really tragic um, circumstances in 2016. She was a diabetic. She was also a gambling addict. She was a single mother. Uh, Ed's dad left them, you know, pretty much broke um, when Ed was at a young age. I mean, it just wasn't a good situation. But for years, Ed and his mom, they were, you know, best friends and they got each other through a lot of stuff. And, you know, the tragedy of it was when she turned 65, she was on Social Security. She was usually gambling that money, you know, to try to take a chance that she could double it, you know, or triple it or something. And she needed that money to pay her rent and to afford her insulin because her Medicare that she had gotten on at 65 was not covering the insulin, which is, you know, we we were trying to, like, research that because we've heard both things. It, It does cover insulin, but maybe it only covers certain kinds of insulin. Either way, it doesn't matter because within a year of b- being on these government programs, she was dead. It's a double-edged sword is what we've realized is that there's elements, these government programs don't actually work for some of these people. But then she was also getting completely screwed by casinos, banks that would like charge her overdraft fees over and over. You know, there's a lot of these private and public enterprises that are just, they are just made to screw over the, the poorest among us and the people who need the most help. And we're going to try to make that funny also because um, Ed's very funny and there are a lot of funny parts of the movie. But, you know, we're trying to essentially, you know, she died in July 2016. So we're trying to get this done by 2020 so we can kind of show this flip side of Trump's America. And it's like this is the world that Trump inherited and this is the world that still exists. And, and this is a world that we need to try and fix because it, it's not right for even if someone is a gambling addict, they shouldn't have to you know, try to double their money so they can afford their medicine. You know, it's just, it's, it's not, uh, it's not right. So, uh, I'm excited to jump back into that one. You know, I've even got that one mostly edited to a point that we can just start piecing together parts. And I really want to get that done by 2020. And then another, um, short term project that we're going to try to turn around by July this year, 2019 is a documentary about my other roommate, uh, my roommate, Ben Kissel, who's also part of the last podcast network and has a big fan base. Um, we ran him for Brooklyn Borough President in 2017 to show you know people how to get involved and things like that. He was a big admirer of my American Mayor movie and my mayor campaign, so he wanted me to run that campaign, and so I ran his campaign. We also shot documentary footage of it, so we're going to try to get that done in the short term to show his fan base, especially since it's 2019 and that is a local election year. We want to especially... By 4th of July, because usually the deadlines are in August, try to inspire at least, I don't know, a few hundred, if not maybe a few thousand of his, specifically Ben Kissel's fans, to run for public office themselves at, at a local level. You know, because it is, it's very obtainable. It's a lot of work, and especially in a place like Brooklyn, which was like huge and kind of over our heads. 
but you know, think about the the kid living, you know, in a town of four thousand people, where he can hit all the doors in three weeks and express actual interest and and actually win and get elected and make a difference. You know, so we're gonna. I want to focus on those two documentaries. You know, Stanley Kubrick made some good short documentaries before he got into his features. So. You know, for me, wrapping up the raccoon movie, getting these two documentaries done to kind of prep for 2020, take a year off filmmaking 2020, focus on politics, and then jump into another, what I hope is, a, is an ideal. As long as these movies go well, right, then you're building up for another dream project that I would, I would try to start getting done in 2021. I love those two documentaries. They sound powerful and inspiring, but also something that can create change through people's ability to watch them and kind of understand how to take the necessary steps, especially with the um, political one. Cause I think even with the marketing of that one coming up with a really nice idea around an eight to 12, you know, short, short video clip series. And then you could basically kick it out to the fans, but then also focus on really making those clips meant to help people run on the local level. Mm -hmm. Cause I yeah. think that's, that's some amazing change right there. Creativity actually helping to shape society. And it, it builds off of the American mayor documentary too. I mean, yeah. I, I ran in 2007 at yeah. a time where Obama was about to come to office. And I don't think anybody was really, you know, especially our age was kind of like, yay, everything's fixed from the, the Bush Cheney age, right? It's never fixed. It's never fixed. And you know, the fact that we were able to get American mayor back on Amazon in 2017, while Ben was running for office, and just the fact that Ben has a larger, even larger fan base and platform than than I do as a comedian and filmmaker, um, but now we can can we can combine our our you know our fan bases and everything to yeah just really spread that message. Um, I'm mean, you know I know as a filmmaker I'm going to try to make Ben's movie a little different. Um, obviously, you know the elements of success are sometimes if you don't win you still have an impact. And I know, you know, with American Mayor, I was able to stop this aggressive expansion from the local university is buying up homes. By running, I was able to stop that, um, which was great. And then, you know, in Ben's case, we found that a lot of the things that he was talking about is running for Brooklyn Borough President, like saving the L train. They're going to have a total L train shutdown, which would have devastated Brooklyn entirely. Uh, and then he was also always talking about legalizing marijuana and criminal justice reform. Basically, what we found in the last year or so is Andrew Cuomo is now advocating for legalizing marijuana, criminal justice reforms, and Andrew Cuomo stepped in and stopped the L train shutdown and forced the city, the MTA, to go with a you know, single tracking, you know, which still is not going to be that great, but it's better than a complete shutdown, you know. I mean, there are people who live along the L train. That's their yeah. only way. That's their lifeblood to Manhattan, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, so by running, you know, we, we made those – big parts of our campaign, and then here they are, and they're becoming reality at a, at a state level. So, um, you know, just by Ben, you know, it's one of those things, like, whether or not Andrew Cuomo was listening to Ben Kissel, Ben Kissel was right. Yeah, and I think creativity often becomes prophetic in ways mm -hmm. because we're in the creative space looking at trying to make a project that sometimes is outside of making money or, like, outside of whatever political means are there. You're just trying to make the project because it needs to be made. It almost acts as an early warning system or early indicator for what actually needs to happen politically. So I think that's kind of amazing that the creativity of the movie actually predicts and becomes kind of prophetic about how society chooses to shape itself. Mm -hmm. I think that's a good high point, and I think it's a great lesson for people to realize that through their activities of making stuff if they do it right change can happen along the way yeah and it's nice to have a history too that you can believe in um you know that was that was a big thing for me living with ben kissel you know 2014 to 2017 um within that time he went from a poor do dog walker to a professional podcaster but during that whole time he was making podcasts him and his friends started building this podcast network in 2011, and they just kept recording every week. And then in 2016, something hit just the right. I think it was my favorite murderer recommended their podcast, Last Podcast on the Left. And from there, the downloads just started coming in, not just for their show, but for all the shows that they had all been doing for five years. You know, there's there are people who are super fans of their work now, of, of Ed and Ben and, and all of them. And, you know, that's, that's exciting because then it's like, you know, 
you hope everyone gets that breakthrough and, and they find that fan base. You know, I mean, Ben can now travel with their podcast to any city and they'll sell out auditoriums. I mean, it's beautiful. And, you know, and what's fun is that he has all this work to back it up, too. So that's what you always hope. It's like, cool, if, if the raccoon movie hits, great. If that one doesn't, then what if Ed's documentary hits? Great. If that one doesn't, what if Ben's documentary hits? Either way, I'm part of this group that has been making stuff consistently, and then you can look at all the work I've done at a political, comedic, journalistic, or filmmaking level, and even there, you can you just pick your favorite. Huh? You don't have to like everything I do. I don't like everything I do, you know. But if, as long as you find something you like, that's that's a victory in itself. And being an artist, you know. Maybe I don't like that painting, but that one over there, that one, that one hits me just right. That's a great lesson for the listeners about keeping the creative community strong. And then eventually, if you do it for five or ten years, the momentum becomes unstoppable in a lot of ways. I just listened to the Skinwalker podcast, episode one, and I can't wait to listen to part two, actually. so Last Podcast on the Left is a podcast of Last Podcast Network. <laughs> Thank you. Last podcast on the left. There you go. You guys are amazing. They are. They're really cool. Yeah. Inspirational, really. Really, truly. And then I love the idea of creating so that now the movie can be kicked out through the podcast. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I think it's really creating that level of momentum. And it goes back to what we said kind of halfway through the episode. Even the studios don't know about this level of distribution. I think the artists are actually right now creating the next level of distribution, and right now they're busy trying to figure it out. Is there any last lesson that you would like to leave filmmakers, creators, people who want to become filmmakers, or just fans of American Filmmaker Podcast? Yes, I would say, um, especially given my current state of being kind of mid-project or towards the end or right at the beginning of other ones, I would just encourage everyone to keep on going. Uh, don't let the haters get you down. Believe in what you do. Listen to your friends. Listen to the people you do trust. I think, um, you know, the opinions you do trust, uh, you know, obviously there's always something you can take away from creative people you enjoy collaborating with. You know, if I had showed Josh my movie and he hated it, um, I'd be like, oh, I'm in trouble. But even if, you know, there are jokes that he does like and other jokes he doesn't like, if he likes it overall, you know, uh, that's an important point. I mean, I I think when we were watching it the other night, uh, th- it was there was some part that you just lost it, and then from there I think you were in, and that's generally how our movie goes at the screenings. It become the it might be twenty minutes in before the crowd laughs collectively at one joke that I did not expect to hit so hard, but it's like great now they're in. So um, always focus on those, always focus on the positives, and just keep going. Thank you for all the lessons and all your wonderful work. Thank you for all your help over the years. Check out Travis Irvine's work. He's got a comedy album out currently. The comedy album is named... Guy from Ohio. Guy from Ohio, Travis Irvine. Please buy it on Apple iTunes, Spotify, and everywhere else in between. And then let's look out for Raccoons 2. Killer Raccoons 2. Killer Raccoons 2. Dark Christmas in the Dark. Coming somewhere. Thank you so much, Travis. Thank you. No, thank you. Lapsing! Cuando triste te encuentres, amigo, cuando solo pienses estar, hazle caso a estas palabras que seguro te van a ayudar. La vida cobra que no, pero es bella aún. Thank you for listening to this episode of American Filmmaker. I want to thank Travis for all of his time and all of his honesty. And I just want to say thanks. It's good to have friends who are part of your creative community. The music used in this episode comes from my first feature film, Postales about a Peruvian street kid who meets a young American tourist girl in the streets of Cusco, Peru. And it becomes a story of the understanding of innocence and how children can somehow overcome cultural misunderstandings. 
The soundtrack is available on iTunes, Spotify, and everywhere in between. Thank you for listening and enjoy the song. Nadie 